Welcome everyone to the JPEN podcast. Today I'm delighted to welcome Manpreet Mundi, who is professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He specializes in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism, but more importantly, he's heavily involved with the Home Parental Nutrition Program and the Inpatient Nutrition Program at Mayo Clinic. He also serves as associate editor of JPEN. Dr. Mundi is senior author of the JPEN review article entitled Management of Long-Term Home Parental Nutrition, Historical Perspective, Common Complications, and Patient Education and Training. I will say that it's an exceptionally well-written article. Very interesting. Lots of interesting points that we're going to actually talk about. Dr. Mundi, if I wanted to thank you, uh, number one, and welcome you uh, to the JPEN podcast. No, thank you so much, and I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. So in your article, as I mentioned, which I thought was exceptionally well-written, there are some really interesting highlights. There is a historical perspective in terms of how it came to be, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that really stood out to me was the management of central line associated bloodstream infections. And in that, in that paragraph, I was struck by the improvement over time in central venous catheter salvage. And I wanted to probe into your group's experience. What factors do you think led to such a, an improvement over time in central venous catheter salvage? Yeah, absolutely. And, and before I answer that question, I'll just take a step back. When we talk about this concept of catheter salvage, what we're really discussing is an attempt to keep the catheter in place when we know there's an infection. And this is the key point because this is so counter to what we all want to do. If we have a patient where we know it's a catheter infection, the first thing we want to do is remove the catheter. But in this case, we are attempting to salvage the catheter because over time with repeated placement and replacement of these catheters, we can damage the vessels and then lose access. And for our patients with intestinal failure, you know, if they depend on TPN, for their nutrition and hydration, this vascular access is their lifeline. And we have to maintain that at all costs. And we have many examples where patients unfortunately have lost access above the diaphragm and then we have to resort to using lumbar lines or femoral lines, you know, which are not as good as you can imagine. So in order to do this, one of the first things, and many other intestinal failure programs also have done this, is that we develop an actual protocol for catheter salvage. If a patient develops a fever, we ask them to report to their closest emergency room or urgent care and be assessed clinically. We ask the local providers to assess them for their clinical stability, making sure you know patient is not septic, making sure they don't need to be admitted or, or something else is going on. We then ask those local providers to draw blood cultures. And this is important. We ask for a draw from the peripheral, actual peripheral stick, as well as from each lumen of the central catheter. And if the patient is clinically stable, instead of immediately removing the line, we ask the provider to keep it in place and to start broad-spectrum antibiotics often like cefepime and vancomycin. If they're okay to be discharged, they can be discharged once that first dose is given. Otherwise, they can be admitted. We then wait for the cultures. This is, again, very hard to do, but we wait for the cultures. 
before we change the antibiotics based on those sensitivities. The next step, you know, to having this protocol in place is to educate the patient. They are going to be their best advocates, especially when it's in the middle of the night at an ER that is not familiar with this kind of protocol. So often these patients will refuse to have the ER remove that line. They say, no, this is what I've been told to do. We have to save it. And please call this number. And we give them our our number. So the third part of our success has been the hard part, which is that we all take pager calls. You know, and in nutrition, we're supposed to have that easy life, right? But we take overnight call, we take call on the weekends precisely for this. So if the local team calls us, we walk them through our protocol and why we're doing it. And I think all of those combined have led us, you know, when we looked at our own data, we had a rate that initially started almost in the 60s, but then went up into the 70s in terms of the catheters we were able to salvage. And other groups, other centers from Europe have also shown very similar results. So it's been a resounding success. That's very interesting in terms of one thing I was thinking about was that over time, you must have socialized the emergency room providers who have contacted you or you have been in contact with, because this program has been going on for so long, you must have socialized many of them to realize that catheter salvage is an important aspect of care in these particular patients. Absolutely. And and most of our patients, you know, they get to the unfortunate part of having intestinal failure. They get to know their local providers because they rely on them for their routine care, their routine blood draws. And so, yep, most of them will will get to know this protocol and can follow it pretty well. Our manuscript also helped where we outline in a step-by-step manner, so that can also be followed as well. Yeah, that's excellent. And it's great to see and hear that the protocol has been adopted elsewhere because, as you said, these lines are lifelines, and you certainly don't want to go below the diaphragm. And those particular lumbar and femoral lines are really the last, last resort. Thank you for that insight, number one, into uh, catheter salvage history over time. And I think it's also very important in terms of the patients being not only educated, but also empowered to basically speak up and say, no, we're not going to take this catheter out. And here's the number to call. I think that that's a really probably the most important development in terms of of saving those particular catheters. The article talks about intestinal failure, and you touched on that a little bit. And I want to ask you a kind of complicated, hard question in terms of the mechanism of intestinal failure. What would be your opinion, if you were to guess, on what the mechanism of intestinal failure associated liver disease is in the home parenteral nutrition population? It's a great question. It's very difficult. The easy answer is it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. I, I could stop at that. But unfortunately, what we're talking about here is one of those complications, just like losing access, that can also be life-altering or or sort of life-ending for many of our patients with chronic intestinal failure on parenteral nutrition. And what we're referring to is intestinal failure-associated liver disease, which is liver disease in patients with intestinal failure without known causes of liver disease, such as hepatitis. And so in this case, we're thinking that the contribution here is from the intestinal failure in itself or from the parenteral nutrition. 
And previously, this was called parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease, penile. But we've gone away from that because we think it's not just the parenteral nutrition. And so when you look at from an intestinal failure standpoint, the first thing is the change in anatomy. Often these patients will have end jejunostomy. They'll have an end ileostomy. They may have some colon left. And, and sometimes that part of the colon is connected to the ileum or the jejunum. So there's a big change that occurs in their intestine. Often the ileocecal valve is missing as well. This combined with the fact that they get most of their nutrition from parental nutrition, may or may not be eating as much. This leads to changes in the microbiome. It leads to changes in the intestines themselves that predisposed inflammation, maybe even infections. All of that can impact the liver. On top of this, you then have the parental nutrition in itself. One is we're providing it intravenously instead of the way the body is used to, which is receiving it enterally. This can lead to changes amongst itself, just like cholestasis, right? Other parts of it, we're giving high amounts of dextrose often. We're using lipid emulsions like soybean oil lipid emulsions that have phytosterols. You know, the soybean in itself has high amounts of linoleic acid, which is an essential fatty acid, but it can also raise the levels of arachidonic acid, which can then be inflammatory in itself. So you could see I'm just naming so many different components that can impact the liver. You know, we just talked about central line infections, but when we have an infection that can cause inflammation, then we treat with antibiotics and those medications can cause the liver to also, you know, get upset. And so we see that all of this can contribute. And we think over time, this can then lead to similar scarring that we see and lead to cirrhosis and the need for a liver transplant and often a, a small bowel transplant. So I, I think it's multifactorial, but it's such an important issue because prevention is key. And so what I think we have to really focus on with intestinal failure associated liver disease, as we define those different contributors to what causes it is also to define the disease in itself, meaning are there criteria that can be readily obtained in a clinical setting? You know, is it just the liver numbers that we would follow and what are the parameters? Should we be getting routine ultrasounds? Should we be getting routine elastography to look at the fat content and the scarring? How frequently should we be doing that? I think all of that needs to be defined because as we start to see those changes, we then become more aggressive about prevention and treatment. So a lot of work for us to do, but I think it's very, very important complication. One thing that came to my mind about the potential uh, etiology is this idea of chronic inflammation. Observing patients over time, of course, one could draw things like CRP, et cetera, et cetera, and more specialized inflammation markers. But if patients are getting complete blood counts drawn once in a while, the red cell distribution width is a, is a reasonable approximation of chronic inflammation. 
And it may be a research tool in terms of looking at chronic inflammation in these patients and looking at other cohorts that have had bloods drawn and biorepositories, et cetera. But it may be a way to think about monitoring inflammation in these particular patients. Because the way I think about it, yes, it's the substrate. Yes, it's the parental nutrition ingredients itself. But I think really the backbone of it is probably the chronicity of inflammation, the severity of inflammation, the amount of time that patients are inflamed, et cetera. Um, what the etiology of the inflammation is from maybe a question mark, but it's an interesting concept. Let me segue on to the education piece. I find it fascinating about how successful you've been in terms of educating your patients, but can you expand on what works best in patient education and in patient training in terms of getting patients motivated, in terms of educating patients, et cetera? You know, as you mentioned our success, I think a lot of that success lies uh, at Mayo Clinic leadership who truly believe in the importance of nutrition and provide us with the resources needed to maintain a multidisciplinary team. I bring this up because across the country, we're seeing that, you know, as key leaders in our field are retiring, as, you know, centers are looking at the revenue that a program managing intestinal failure generates versus procedures, right, for a gastroenterologist, we're seeing that teams across the country are being disbanded instead of being formed. And so it's it's a big concern, but we've been lucky enough to be able to maintain our multidisciplinary team. And I think that is perhaps one of the biggest reasons for our success. In order to have adequate patient education and training, I think we need a multidisciplinary team that consists of nursing, dietitians, as well as providers. Each of us brings a different skill set and background knowledge that we impart to patients. The second for us, just like with our protocol for infections, you know, is having a manual, having an actual document that we give to patients, and it's now a, a folder, but we give to patients. It allows it, uh, them to take it home, to read through it, to study it, and to use it at the time that they are providing parental nutrition. Our manual has really evolved over decades of managing patients. We've also had the input of experts from patient education to ensure that the language is appropriate and something at the right level for patients to follow. The third is the commitment of our staff members. You know, and our team always uh, has felt that prevention of complications such as infection starts with education and training. So we actually dedicate about eight to 10 hours of in-person, hands-on training to make sure that the patient understands how to provide TPN at home, how to connect, disconnect, you know, how to care for their central line, how to manage complications when they arise. And we only discharge the patient once we know they've mastered these skills. So it's quite labor intensive, but we feel quite worth the time. And I think all of this combined is what leads to best outcomes for patients. That's very interesting in terms of the amount of resources put in. But, you know, similar to other programs like keeping congestive heart failure patients out of the hospital, there has to be some very creative thinking and some resources put into patient education and patient follow-up. The last piece that I wanted to pick your brain about is about your experience with home parental nutrition caregiver burnout. 
I can imagine, and I know for sure that chronic disease equals caregiver burnout. So in terms of your particular experience with home parental nutrition, because it's lifelong, what has been your experience with caregiver burnout? Yeah, this is such an important topic for us to be discussing. And I think we need a lot more of this kind of discussion. I think provider burnout is probably the highest I've ever seen it in my entire career. I think with the COVID epidemic, what we saw from the patient side was a lot of deferral of care. You know, many of our patients in the intestinal failure group, they didn't want to come in for their annual visits. They didn't want to come in for their blood draw, their routine lab draw. You know, they were afraid to come into a healthcare facility and wanted as much as they could through telehealth and non-in-person care. On the other end of the spectrum, we had staff who were working just extremely long hours under what I would consider grueling conditions. Uh, When you looked at our hospital and we're constantly wearing masks, face shields, we're seeing, you know, our colleagues then leaving the field entirely. They're retiring. Some, maybe they became ill. They succumbed to illness, even COVID. So we're experiencing all of this and it's led to now you know, us being extremely short-staffed in all disciplines at a time when those same patients who deferred care are now starting to come back, you know? So all of them are coming back all at once as well. And the other thing that we're seeing is that for years, they essentially, you know, were working from home and so didn't have that same interaction they may with others And with that, I would almost describe it as social awkwardness, their distress tolerance, the way they react to, you know, the same amount of distress is totally off than what it was before. And so you've got a short staff situation where the volume of patients coming in is high and those patients are very impatient. They may lash out in different ways. So I think this is all contributing to very, very high levels of burnout which is making the situation worse. And I unfortunately don't have an answer. I'm literally living through all of this every day. But what we have tried to do amongst ourselves is to be there for each other. You know, one is we are checking on each other when we see that one of us is, you know, stressed or getting short, we just have a lunch meeting or have a talk and and try to get together and kind of empathize with what the others are going through and share with them that we're all in this together. Uh, We're also, you know, if someone needs time, maybe a vacation or time away, we're covering for each other to make sure that is allowed and can occur so that when they return, you know, they're at their best. The same thing we're doing with patients as well. You know, we as physicians are intervening more and kind of discussing with the patients that, you know, we understand you're frustrated, but this is probably not the way to share that frustration. It's putting a great deal of stress on our team and and our nursing staff and our dietitians. Instead, let's work through what your frustration have these. So I think I've had more of those kind of discussions than I've ever had with patients and also just outlining what's appropriate conduct and not appropriate conduct. And fortunately, Mayo Clinic, our institution, has also come up with kind of guidelines as well. 
so those are all helping us kind of work through this, but I'm hopeful that it's short, but it may go on for another six months to a year at least before we can get through this. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's almost like we all have to be re-educated because we're re-entering society in a way after being away for two or three years and still not completely integrated within the society. But I like this idea of making it clear what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in terms of patient-provider interactions and also in terms of trying to help the person at home who's taking care of the, of the person on home TPN in terms of having that open channel of communication, which sounds like your group has been a leading edge in terms of communication. Just the idea of having a pager for communication to outside providers and emergency rooms, but also to your patients, that's really a step up in terms of the amount of involvement in the patient's care. And that's probably why your patients do better in terms of uh, catheter salvage and other, other types of issues. Thank you, Dr. Mooney, for sharing your expertise on this topic. I also thank our audience for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For JPen, this is Kenneth Christopher signing off. Thank you very much. <laughs>